Well, we're going to jump in this morning back into our uh, series of, uh, found, called Foundations. We talked last week, one of the more fun messages, I think I was pretty vocal about that, one of the more fun messages that I get to preach because it's all about the, the salvation, which is a reflection of, of uh, my favorite topic to talk about when we, when we uh, get together with people. And we're going to sort of continue that. We, I gave you the visual earlier, of course, I gave it the whole time when I used the word foundations, but the visual that we're building on this idea of what we believe. We began with the very foundational things and we build on top of that. And uh, so today we're going to build on top of this, this, this layer of salvation we laid. And probably, not surprisingly, and I would probably even say appropriately, when we talk about salvation, we immediately begin to sort of apply that uh, on an individual basis for each of us individually needs to receive salvation, right? Uh, individually. The, the sins of the Father won't, won't uh, be held accountable to the Son, and likewise the Son's actions will not, uh, will not uh, doom the, the Father's, those kind of things. We have to each individually make the choice of salvation, whether we're going to trust in what Jesus has done or not, and... Uh, and, and, and we should do that. However, we recognize there's, or we should recognize, we're going to talk about today, that, that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an implication beyond just the individual when we talk about salvation. And, and I don't know how you're going to receive this, so I want to be careful not to, I don't want to, I don't want to say this negatively necessarily, uh, but I, I want to make sure we're aware of that, that there's more to God's salvation than just your individual rescue. I hope you can hear when I say that. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that you're not important to God or that, you're like, that you don't matter. Uh, but I'm trying to get us to recognize, uh, to maybe fight a bit against what creeps in so easily is we, we tend to just sort of uh, uh, strip everything else away and say, well, salvation is just about me and God and my relationship. And the danger of that is that I can do whatever I want to. And as long as I think I'm right with God, then I'm, it just lets us into some other scary places. And to realize that when God sent Jesus to rescue people, they were individuals, but the implications go far beyond you as an individual. We talk about the church. I would suggest to you that God brought about salvation, not just to save you, but to redeem the church, to bring a bride out for his groom, for his son, Jesus. I would evidence that by saying when he showed the world the glimpse of salvation, he did it through Abraham and he made him into a people. He uses that phrase. He said, you are my people. I'm your God. He didn't just say, Abraham, I choose you and I'm going to choose this individual over here. I'm going to choose this individual over here. He said, I am bringing a people. He's interested in the church. So let's start off with what we uh, always do. I'm going to read right out of the, the statement that we're working through, give you the uh, churchy sounding language if I can put that up there. The church of Jesus Christ is the universal body of redeemed believers committed to Jesus Christ as Lord and finds expression in the local church. And there's a long line here. It finds expression in the local church in worship, fellowship, holiness, discipline, teaching and preaching the word, prayer, spiritual gifts, and the New Testament ordinances. These are things that we say we believe make up the local expression of the global body. The church is called out from and is separate from the world, but reaches out to the world with the gospel and the cup of cold water. The church as the body of Christ is the visible representation of God on earth and is ready to suffer and serve as required by Christ and his word. Now, I can assure you, if you have been reading these, I hope you have been, but if you've been reading these in preparation, you, it's, there's, there's, there's no problem in recognizing that there is 
there's an entire message in that. I mean, more so than I could even probably treat this morning. There's an entire message. Those are good words. They're carefully chosen words. Men spent a long time crafting those and looking them, and this is true not just for today, but for all of them, crafting them and putting together the right things and the right phrases. And every word, for the most part, is there with, with some specific things there. And unfortunately, like in today, I, I, I can't just, it's not possible for me to, to to really give adequate detail to every single thing. Now, I do believe some of that's going to come out more as we do the statement of faith and practice, which is going to come after this. I've told you that before. We're going to focus on how do we apply the stuff that we believe then. And so some of this stuff is going to come out there again. Today, I'm going to summarize for you, or I can pull together some main themes that I believe Scripture clearly teaches is true about the church. And of course, as I've said all the way along, the challenge is, do you actually believe that? Is that really what you believe about the church, for example, today? Now, just like last week, I want to give us one, uh, actually two verses, but one little section here that's sort of the overarching, the over, uh, uh, sort of the, the undergirding and overarching way for us to look at the church. And they come from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Again, if you have a handout, it's on the back side of the bulletin. If you want to follow along, if that's helpful to you, uh, please, it tells you all the scriptures I'm using and those kind of things. Now, there may be some other things that slip in, but for the most part, that's where we're going to go. Peter writes this in his uh, second chapter, first letter that he wrote that we have in the scripture here. It says, but you, and I would remind you, the you is not an individual you. It is a, is a, is a you all. It's a plural you, if I can say that. So it's like me saying it to all of you this morning at one time. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He uses four different phrases to communicate the same thing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, there he uses that word again, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we're going to just break this apart. We're going to jump in. We've got lots of ground to cover, and you all don't want to be here till 1 o'clock, so let's jump in. The church, we believe, is a people called out. There's a phrase in there. It's a people called out. Now, quite, quite literally, quite technically, the word church in the New Testament, it actually doesn't appear a whole lot of times, believe it or not, but the word church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means called out. So that's why we use that phrase. That's why I put it in, in, in quotations. So, and that's why it's in our statement of theology. The church is a people that is called out. Now, right away, when you say things like that, I think you, I, I, unless you're just not willing to think at all, you have to immediately say, what are we called out of? And on the other side of that coin, what are we called into? And I think to a large degree, that kind of, those questions really should and can guide us in a lot of things as to how we act as a church. Answer those questions. If we are a people called out, if we are called the ecclesia, then what are we called out of? And what are we called into? Now, lots of things sort of get clarified when we begin to say, now I realize we're going to say, and all of us come in different places, but we're going to say there's, there's a lot of middle ground, so a lot of fuzzy things, a lot of whatever you want to call that. But by and large, at least beginning with saying, if I'm called out, that has to mean something. Has to mean something. Again, I submit to you that uh, God, when he calls out, when he, when, he, when he does this, he's done it all through Scripture. I will hang on to that thought, and I'm going I'm to just follow through here. Um, the first thing that we recognize, now, I, I should say this about, I, I think I made this mention, but I, maybe you know this, but I should say this. When we talk about the church on one level, it, I read it in the Statement of Theology, 
every person who's received salvation, who's made a confession of faith, who's placed his salvation and lordship in Jesus Christ is part of the church. That's what we call the global church. That's the called out body. Now, clearly lots of things we're going to talk about what the church does, for example, can't happen on a global scale, can it? Like we can't get together for worship, for example, with every believer in the whole world at one time. It, I mean, we will someday, but we can't now, right? It's kind of impossible. We live, for one, on vastly different parts of the globe. We wouldn't all fit in the building. I mean, that's, there's just, there's, so we recognize that there's a local expression. And by the way, this is very clear in Scripture. I know people sometimes get hung up about, like, ah, oh, the, the Bible never talks about, you know, separations. We're all part of, well, hold on. Like, when Paul addresses a letter, he says to what? The church that is at Corinth the ecclesia that is at Corinth. He's referring to the fact that of the global group of called out believers, those that are at Corinth. Like he has no problem saying, I'm talking to these specific ones. I'm not talking to all these. Now we know that that same thing applies and a lot of things we're gonna talk about apply to all of them. I'm just trying to say, like we're gonna, we recognize there's a global body, there's a local body. And we should recognize a few things about the global body and the local body. They apply the same way. I wanna say two things. As we look at even these verses I read in First Peter, I believe it tells us First of all, that as he uses those phrases, a people, uh, a people of his own possession, a royal uh, nation, a chosen, uh, I got those mixed up, I think, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, I believe they show that we are unified. There's a unity to the body. Let me show you what I mean. I'll just put those phrases up. By the way, the last phrase I changed a bit because it's literally what it says in the Greek. It's actually just about a couple of words in the Greek, not this long phrase. It just means that we are purchased that God purchased us. Of course, we talked about that last week. That's salvation, redemption. He purchased us. We belong to him, not to ourselves. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people. What's the first word I said in every one of those phrases? A. Now, if we think carefully, it's so easy for us to just sort of read through things and be like, ah, but if we pause carefully for a bit and look at the specific words we're reading, does not the word A in itself indicate a singularity? There's one, a, it is a chosen race, not some chosen races. It is a royal priesthood, not a couple of royal priesthoods or a few royal priesthoods or it's a, it's singular. It denotes unity. There's one. By the way, I could also just point to some of those phrases. Most of us, when we identify ourselves in every category of things, so you've got to fill out a survey. By the way, the census is coming up next year. I think so you're going to be filling out lots of stuff about, your, about who you are. Those questions of identity may be asking you, what race are you? What nation do you come from? This makes it very clear that there is a race that supersedes every other race. When it says a chosen race, there's a race that supersedes every other race. It makes it clear that there is a nation, a group of people that supersedes every other political affiliation. Listen carefully. This is the unity of the church. When God says through Peter that you are a chosen race, he is to indicate that your primary identifier should no longer, for most of us here today, be Caucasian. You are a race that belongs to Jesus. You have something in common that supersedes with everyone else that belongs to Jesus that goes beyond the color of your skin. Or that goes beyond your political affiliation, what country you come from. Your allegiance, that's why salvation often can be talked about in the terms of allegiance, because your allegiance is greater, hear me on this because I think we struggle with this, your allegiance is greater to the rest of the body of Christ than it is to the nation that you call your home. 
Because you are a holy nation. There is a holy nation. And you are part of it when you've received Jesus Christ. It supersedes every other political. I'm not saying the other part doesn't matter. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it supersedes. It has to take second place to your other affiliation politically or your race or anything else has to take second place. Now, along with that, though, I want to really focus more on this part because this also becomes very clear. Those same phrases make it clear that not only is there a unity to the body, there's a unification in the church. There is a distinction made. The church is distinct. Now, I'll use that phrase called out so you already know that. But the church is distinct. God has been doing this, by the way, from the beginning of time. What did we talk about when we talked about God and his creation? And God said, how's it finish? Let there be light, right? You know that. But what does it say right after that? Well, just before, actually before it was good, what did he do? And there was light and he what? He separated light from darkness. He made a distinction. There's a whole interesting sermon that someday I'll maybe get to, get, to, uh, get to preach. But there's a very strong theme running through Scripture that wisdom, particularly God's wisdom, but wisdom is all about separation, about separating, about distinguishing. God said, let there be light, and he separated the light from darkness. I gave you the example of Abraham. When God made Abraham distinct, he separated him, right? He said, come out from your people, from your family, and follow me, and I will make you a nation. That, by the way, was a precursor to what he was going to do, because then he sent Jesus to, to fulfill that distinction. What he was showing the world through the people of Israel, he fulfilled when Jesus came. I can tell you also, and you know this, but think, I can tell you also that someday there will be a final distinction made, right? It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Is your name in the book of life or is it not? And a distinction will be made. God will separate, will call out, will make distinct those who are in Christ and they have an eternity with him and those who are not in Christ and have eternity of punishment in a place we call hell, of torment and of pain. He will make a final distinction. Again, this is a bit of pushback against some of the sort of modern feel good, everything has to be, nobody can get offended kind of thing where we say we're not allowed to make distinctions. That is a lie from the enemy. God makes distinctions all the time. The church is distinct. It is different from the rest of the world. Look at these words. I put the same phrases up here a little bit ago. Maybe if I'll go here. Oops, now you help me out, right? A chosen race. What does the word chosen mean? Last time we focused on race, what does the word chosen mean? It means selected, right? It means drawn out. If I were to take you to the donut shop and say you can choose one donut, then you choose that one. What happens about all the other ones? You did not choose them, right? You did, made one distinct. You did not make the others distinct. I'm not going to take you to donut shop. Sorry about that. You're a royal priesthood. Royal. That denotes a step above, right? You're a holy nation. Holy. That denotes set apart. Distinct separated, and I went, you already saw this, but he, right in the next phrase after in the same verse, he called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the answer to the question, by the way, to what you're called out of. You're called out of darkness, out of everything you think of when you think of darkness, and into his marvelous light. The church is to be distinct. 
let's just focus on that word distinct for a little bit, and I want to turn back to uh, the, the book of Acts. We just went through the book of Acts. Now, by the time we, we went through the, this particular text I'm going to read, it's been quite a while ago because it took us, you know, several years to get through Acts. But uh, Acts chapter 4, we see this glimpse as the church begins to, uh, to, be, to be established. And, and in fact, right, on the, right, right before this, we talk about how they came to Peter, and, and Peter is exhorting him, and he says, hey, get baptized, come in with us. And he says, I'm trying to get you, I'm in the wrong section here. Chapter 2, thank you. I'm trying to get you to save yourself from this crooked generation. You guys know where I'm going. I'm trying to save yourself, get you to save yourself from this crooked generation. That sounds a lot like he's saying, you're distinct. Come out of that, that, that lost generation. Come out of them. By the way, think of the word save by itself. Just the word save. Doesn't it mean exactly that? That there's a distinction, there's a separation? For you're saved from something. I mean, it just follows. You can't say... You can't say, I'm, I'm drowning in a river. Thank, thank God I got saved. Saved from what? The from what follows naturally. We all understand that when we use that phrase. But, called yourself out of this crooked generation. They were baptized. They were added. And then we read these verses. And you all know these verses. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an amazing section of verses and many times we fall in the trap of we want to play both sides we either make ourselves feel really guilty because we're not we don't do exactly like what they did or we say oh that doesn't matter and we don't try to do anything like what they did and I say both are wrong these people demonstrated that they were different from the rest of the people out around them didn't they different in a several ways and whether we have a discussion about that we should be doing these exact things today with our churches or not there's certainly some themes we can pick out that we say these people were different. They were distinct from those around them. Let me just give you an example. They were devoted. I put different devotions. Oops, maybe we're not there yet. I put different devotions, which don't be confused with like what we say devotions is like spending time with the Lord. I don't mean that. They were devoted to different things. Look at what it says. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking bread together. They were devoted to prayer. What are you devoted to? Are your devotions any different than the world's? Are you devoted to things that are different than what the rest of the culture around us is devoted to? If you're not, you can in no way say that you are distinct, in which I would say mean you can in no way say you're part of the church. For it's clear in Scripture the church is to be distinct. What are you devoted to? Look, they had different values and goals with their lives. They took their things and said, hey, you have need? I'll sell it and I'll give you the money. Hey, it's mine, but it's fine. You use it. You need it just as bad as I do. Maybe worse right now. I'll just keep it for a while. When you're done with it, I'll take it back. It's no big deal. Look at their values, the things they said were important. Look at the goals they had. What did they think the point of getting money was for? Perhaps a little different than we sometimes think. I could ask this question at the end of every one of these, right? Are your goals and values any different from the world around you? If not, I think you have a hard time saying that you're distinct, that you're a royal, a royal priesthood or a holy nation or a chosen race. 
or people of God's possession. They had different daily routines. Notice it makes, I mean, all these things are said because the author here in the book of Acts is trying to point out that these people did things differently than they used to, differently than everyone else around them. And it caught people's attention, right? Thousands were coming to be added to them, uh, to their numbers, because they were doing things so differently, so dramatically differently. They had different daily routines. It says in my text, in my translation, maybe yours is a bit different, but in my translation, it says that they went daily into the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. They were together with other believers every day. They had different daily routines than you and I did. I might ask the same question again. Is your daily routine, if you would take your daily routine and lay it alongside one of the worst people you could pick out in the world, is it look any different? Now, you might say, well, yeah, the things you're, he's doing drugs and I'm not. I'm talking about, like, the things that you do. Is there any part of your routine, like, over, like, your generic routine? Like, I get up and I eat breakfast and I go to work and I come home and I have some TV time and I talk to my family, hopefully a little bit, and then I want to make sure I have some me time and then I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to wake up tomorrow and do it again. Is our daily routine any different than the world's around us? If it's not, I have a hard time saying that we can in any way be classified as a chosen race. To me, it looks like we're just like every other donut in the donut shop I didn't pick. In summary, they had a different spirit. They had a different spirit than those around them. Well, I've made a lot of, took a lot of time with that first point, which is fine. It was a big major point we should make. The church is to be called out. To be different. To be both unified among itself and distinct from the rest of the world. But I can in no way stop the message here. And trust me, in practicality, I think particularly, if I can say this without smashing too many people's toes and getting anybody's ire too high, and particularly those of us from our cultural background, we have too often stopped right here with the message and said, my whole purpose is I should be called out and be different from the world, and that's what I'm going to do. That's my goal. The problem is that's not everything that Peter says. In fact, I skipped a phrase. I, I pointed out the first part, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people of his own possession. And I pointed out the next part of that, of that verse, the last part, which says that we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. But did you notice I did not read the middle part of that? Why? Why are you called out? Why is the church distinct? Why is it unified? Why is it to be different from the rest of the world? Why? That's the question we have to answer. What's the reason? Is it just so that you look different from the rest of the world? According to... What Peter wrote here, and I would say according to the rest of Scripture too, says, we believe the church is to be called out because it exists to proclaim him. He says that right here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You should be different from the world around you. And the reason you should be different is so that you can proclaim his name. You can point to him. Again, 
Far too often we have stopped at the first part and said we have to be different and we make ourselves different and we say we've got to stay different. We forget that the whole reason we're supposed to be different is to proclaim Jesus. Let me give you a few other references from Scripture. Actually, let me have you read a few other references from Scripture. Someone look up Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Very familiar verses. I think you all know this. It starts off, you are the light of the world. Maybe you can quote them. This is talking about being distinct. This is talking about being, being called out. This is talking about being different from the rest of the world around you. But it tells you the why too. Someone read that for us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16, out in a nice, loud, clear voice. How many of you have heard that line all the time? You're the light of the world. It's true, by the way. That's a plural you. Again, it's not an individual you. I mean, it is individual. I mean, I can't say the plural is not made up of individuals, so it, it is. But it's a plural you. Notice the very first reference he gives. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Why does he use that reference? Because he wants to make sure we understand. We're talking about a group of people, a city on a hill. The church is the light of the world. Why? Why are we the light of the world? Why should we not hide ourselves? Why should we not cover that light up? Why should we do our good deeds and let that light shine from us? Why? So that when they see what we have done, what do they do? Say, man, that Merlin, he's an amazing guy. No? To glorify God, right? That they would glorify your father. I suggest you know this is true, but that is an art in and of itself. Doing good works and making sure I don't get the credit, but it goes there. The focus goes here. God is the amazing one. God is the one who is good. God is the one who deserves all the glory. God has done this incredible thing. I would be nothing without him working in me. We exist to proclaim him. The church exists to proclaim him. Let me take you to some verses. Now, this is a rather lengthy text, so if you would turn in your Bibles, I have the reference listed there for you, but turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week in salvation, we talked, when we talked about salvation, we actually read the verse that I'm going to begin with today, which is a very familiar verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You guys all know this verse? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come, right? We talked about that during salvation. Now, let me read some more verses to get us to realize the point that I'm trying to make today about the church. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So this is kind of overlapping. Last week, the point we're making, God reconciled the world to him through Jesus Christ. This week, the point we're making is the flip side of the, the, the rest of those verses because he's also entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Verse 20, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for God. I'm sorry, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's the message we carry. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, 
then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. These things, I'm guessing you've heard them other times. You recognize, you've been taught, you've been told all this time. Hey, we are get to work with God. And this is true, by the way. We get to work with God in this incredible ministry that he has and making sure the world knows that he has reconciled the whole world to him through Jesus Christ. It's an amazing gift we have. And, and he makes it so clear. And many times we would read these things and say, oh, yes, we want the whole world to know. We, we want them so badly to know Jesus. But I want to point out the next verses we have to read because this tells us what God expects of the church if we're really sincere in saying we exist to proclaim him. He's made his appeal. He says, we implore you, we beg of you, be made right with God. But he didn't just say those things verbally. Look what he says, verse 3 of chapter 6. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. That sound like anything anybody wants to sign up for? Oh, I want the whole world to know Jesus. It's my job. I hope they figure it out while I'm having my nice, cushy life. You see, the world is called out for a reason to proclaim Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just come because we, because we want that. He says we, we, we made sure there's no obstacle. We did everything we could. By the way, I read a list to you. I just finished reading a list to you of things that were external that may have come into his life. Look at the next list because these are not external things. These are internal things, which quite honestly for us might be a little more difficult even. Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In other words, I have no other weapons except for righteousness. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, and he says parenthetically, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. One of the most powerful passages I can think of in Scripture that reminds us that we as a church, as the body of Christ, we are called to be distinct, we're called to be unified, and we are called to be bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this comes at a cost to us. If God sent his own son into the world to redeem the world, and he did it through a path of suffering and servanthood. Why do we, his church, expect it any different? I just said this, but someone want to read Mark 10, 45? Do you know Mark? Hold on. Some child in quizzing. I need a Bible quizzer. Attention, please. A Bible quizzer. No cheating by looking at the back, Marcus, I see you. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man. Can someone finish that verse? Somebody say it out loud. For even the Son of Man, Zach. Perfect. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If we belong to him, if we are called out to proclaim the excellencies of him, it seems ludicrous to think that I would lift high the name of Jesus who came as a servant and to give his life as a ransom and refuse to do the same thing myself. I can tell you my praise of him falls really flat, looks really empty, looks really pointless. You should get to know this guy, Jesus. He's the most incredible guy ever. He lived his life. He gave it up for others. He was beaten. He was you should really do that. But please don't say anything unkind to me or don't treat me unfairly. Or don't ask me to do something that, you know, might be a risk. One final point I want to make this morning. The church is called out. It exists to proclaim. It's given a ministry. That ministry is to proclaim Jesus Christ, the gospel of who Jesus is. And we have to recognize that as a church, we minister out of what we ourselves have received. Our, if I could even put it this way as strongly as I can, our only option of ministry, of really ministering to people with the truth of Jesus, is to do it out of what we ourselves have received. And that is mercy. Because we have received mercy, we will love people. We will care for them. We will help them when we need to. We will share with them. We will give of ourselves. We will be pressed. We will be persecuted. We will give everything. We will open our hearts wide open, even if it may mean we get stepped on. It will, all those things, because mercy was shown to us, we think they should have mercy too. I would tell you, I would challenge you. This is one of those places where I say, do I really believe this? I would tell you the footing the undergirding for every piece of Christian ministry, and I'm, I'm, I'm open to conversation about this if you think it might not be true, but any avenue of Christian ministry you can ever find in some way at its root ground level is footed or based or comes out of mercy. There can be no other way for it to be effective. Think of the truth of that. How effective are you in sharing Christ with people when you speak from up here and they're down here? You know how desperately they need mercy, but you've got it all figured out. How effective are you? You can answer that, right? You know that. Not at all. Are you? Or have you been effective? Have you won many to, many to Christ because you have made it clear to them that you have all the answers and figured it all out? It is out of our desperate need for mercy and salvation that we can minister in any form or form, any, any way, shape, or form, any format to people who also need that mercy. We are no different except that we've received the truth already. I want to make sure, I want to make sure, I mean, we're different in that way. We have a different spirit. But we have been there. We, we did not begin, we did not begin saved. Let me point out a few things about mercy ministry. And I want to be clear about this because the church ministers, and I think in two big ways, and sometimes we forget this. The church ministers in two this is overarching category. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I mean, all the, like, there's just, like, there's literally hundreds of ways the church ministers. But in two overarchingly big categories of ministry the church is involved in, through mercy. The first is in an effort to mature those that are already in the church. Remember we used the word last week about sanctification? Justification means that, that, that thing that happened when Jesus paid for our sins, we're redeemed, we're justified. We are right before God. But we are in this process of sanctification, of becoming more like him. And it's the church who performs the ministry of making 
people more like Christ, making each of us more like Christ. It is a function of the church. Uh, somebody read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Now, Paul, before you read, Paul has just done this, 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 this powerful words. He says, when Christ, he died, he went down in the grave, he came back out. When he did that, he led captives. He, he took captives, he took death. He, all the stuff he worked for us, and he handed out gifts because he's, he's setting up a picture of what the triumphant king would give. When he comes back, he's handing out gifts. And he handed out gifts, and he handed out the gifts of, of an apostle and a prophet and an evangelist and a, and a teacher and a shepherd and all those things. And he said, and these gifts are all there in the church because they're to be used so the church grows up and becomes mature and is no longer tossed this way and tossed that way, but that it becomes solid. And then he says these words in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Someone read them out loud for us. This is inward ministry, if I can put it that way. The church is to minister. It is to take the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring it to people. First of all, that is inwardly focused. It is here. It is among us. Unless you claim to be perfect, you still need to grow in Christ. And the method that that happens is by the rest of us doing our parts. Every one of us has a part to play. That's a big part of that text is about. We don't have time to go into that this morning. But every one of us has a part to play. And as we together speak the truth in love and every part does its work together, again, that's a corporate, those words are corporate. He doesn't say that so that you as an individual will be like perfect as the house. But together as the church, we are built up into the house. Or he actually used the, the, the image of a body because he says Jesus is the head. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. He uses the picture of a house. This ministry, this reconciliation with God, this, 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 this mercy ministry of recognizing how desperately we need Jesus and how God has already given us what, through Jesus what we actually desperately need happens inwardly as we grow to mature. It also happens outwardly, of course, that we are to multiply. I'm going to spend some time talking about that tonight, but let's, let's first of all go to uh, the, script, the text here. I, I gave you a reference. Most of us know this reference, Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. It's what we call the Great Commission, but we're going to hear it again this morning. It's good for us to hear the Word of God. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. Someone read it out loud for us. Or if you know it by heart, you can say it that too. It's important to recognize that Jesus was saying those verses because he was about to leave, which reinforces the fact that he was leaving us with a ministry, with a job to do, with a task. And the us is the church, right? It's the church. Those who follow after him, those who call, are called by that name, those who were called out. And that ministry is an outward focus. Go into all the world. It starts here and go into all the world and make more disciples. Multiply. Bring people in. If it hasn't been made abundantly clear yet this morning, I want to remind you, we sometimes get in this mode and think like, we talk about church and we think it like is a building and that we go to church every week and that's just like part of our habit and our routine and we go there and if I go and sit there and I sing the songs and I give my money sometimes and I listen to this guy go on and on and on, you know, for a really long time about stuff and 
and talk to a few people and leave again. Like that, that means I like had church. According to what we read from our statement of theology and according to what I read for you from the word of God this morning, that is not church. I mean, it's part of church, I could say, but we are the church. People are church, not a building. And I can't say, of course, we call this a church building. We're not going to call it something else either. But we are the church. God is working through the church, and that is people, not buildings. I might add, not programs either. It's people. It's us. It's us saying that he has handed this ministry reconciliation to his people, the people of Jesus Christ, who are called out for the reason that they might exalt and lift him up. And he has given them that ministry so that they might grow inwardly into maturity and grow outwardly to bring more people in. That is church. That is the church. I I don't know if I should say this. I don't, know if I, I don't know if it's smart of me to say this. I'm not always very smart, I guess. If you are interested in the other kind of church, I, I think I could say this pretty clearly. That's not, what I'm inter- that's not what God's interested in. That's not what I'm interested in. That's not what our elder team is interested in. That's not what we want to do here. We want to be a people who are called out to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, ministering out of what we ourselves have received, which is mercy to each other, and to the world around us. Tonight, as we think about bringing other people in, the major part of that is sharing the gospel with people. It can happen in no other way. You can be kind to them. You can do good things for them. You become a friend to them. You can do all kinds, and you should. There's all parts of, of, of what we call evangelism. But at the core, at the center of that, has to be, there's no other way to bring someone into the kingdom of God other than through the gospel, under the, other than having them understand the gospel. And we're going to begin with the idea that many of us, though we know a lot about the gospel, and we've probably been raised in the gospel, and we've probably been hurrying it all of our lives long, many of us still struggle mightily that if we were to sit down next to someone who did not know the first thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would not be able to share it in a clear, concise way. And that's what tonight is about. We want you to be here tonight because we plan to... Joe and I are going to be co-teaching this tonight. We plan to help us all to understand how it can be that when God opens those doors, we spent a whole year being available, talking about being available, so if we really are, that when God opens those doors, that we can share the gospel with people. And we want to do everything we can to make it not intimidating and not full of pressure, not like, just come. You need to be here tonight. It, it, it's exactly what the message is about. I, I can't say it any other way. It's exactly what the message is about. Like, we're the church. Let's come and learn how to be the church. And I'm not, I don't say that boastfully or saying you're doing a bad job of it already. Or, you understand what I mean. Pray with me if you would. God, thank you so much for your word, for your presence this morning. I want to take full responsibility for things that I might have said and that probably did, in fact, say that weren't uh, biblical or weren't quite accurate or were not truthful in some way. And God, I, 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 wanna, I ask for two things. First of all, I ask that you just remove them from our minds so that we don't even think about them. And if that's not the way it goes, if it is thought about or brought up, I want to know about it and I want to be humble and I want to say I was wrong about those things. I don't pretend to have all the answers, God, but I will stand firmly in the fact that your word does and my job, my, my, my desire, my hope is to, is to illuminate that. And God, on the opposite side of that whole thing, I... Trust in you and your Holy Spirit that for the things that were shared that were biblical and accurate and true, 
that you get the glory for those and you bring them home. You, if I can use this phrase, you, you press them down into our hearts and in our minds that they may reside there, that we may truly say, this is what I believe about the church and I want to be part of that. You are an incredible God. It is because of what you have done through Jesus that we even have this phrase, the church, this idea of being called out. It's even possible for us who had not received mercy at one time to have now received mercy, to now be a people, and not just any people, but a chosen people, a people that were paid for by Jesus Christ and his precious blood. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I don't deserve any of that. There's not even, there's, there's nothing close to even deserving in me that says I should be called a, a chosen race or a royal priesthood. And yet that's what your word says for those of us who are in Christ. When we think about it that way, God, there can be no other option than you getting the glory because it is all a work that you have done. And I'm so grateful that you want us to work alongside of you and allow us to participate in this incredible reconciliation business, to be ambassadors for Christ. It is a high calling. We need your help and your grace to do even that. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.